0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: Hi, you're listening to LeechFest, a medical history podcast about forbidden flowers and lethal chemicals, because today we're talking about opium and the opioid epidemic.
0: We sure are.
1: It's a dark subject, once it's, again.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I've noticed that we do this thing where we um, kind of go from fun topics to really dark topics.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And it's it's good. No, like, the, 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 the heavy topics, like, they need to be talked about, mm-hmm. too. Um, but it's a lot harder to, like, make them fun and bantery, mm-hmm. so I feel like we, we have this, the, the more fun ones in between, like as a palate cleanser, like about the, de- the Black Death. mm mm-hmm. um, But yeah, I hope Was that the
1: fun one? The Black Death? Well, it was kind of fun, yeah. The most d- deadly pandemic in the history of the world. Fun!
0: I just think because it was like 500 years ago, um, <laughs> Yes, it's... Tragedy
1: it's... has become comedy. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's a good point.
0: But yeah, we're talking about opium, we're talking about the opioid epidemic.
1: Mm-hmm. We're going to talk about pharmaceutical fraud. Yeah. I am. Later, anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. But before before we do that, Mia, how are you?
1: I am good. I have worked significantly this month, as with every month. I say that every time I report. Mm-hmm. Uh, but no, I've been, I've been working, working a lot. I've been doing a lot of research. I've been reading books mm-hmm. for once, mm-hmm. which I never do. <laughs> Usually I just read web pages, but I've actually been reading physical books.
0: Wait, didn't you say you were reading books last time we recorded as well? Maybe. I feel like that's something you said last time too.
1: Oh my god, I'm in a I'm in a book phase. Yeah. I'm actually reading. <laughs> 2021 um, is my year for reading a physical book. Look but you also
0: that. you also have good news to share. You got a vaccine time.
1: Yes. Um, speaking of medical medical news, actually today, the day of recording, I actually got a, I got a text message from from the health services that i have i have a date i have a date with one of the flavors (laughs) i don't know which one it is i'm hoping it's sputnik i'm holding my (laughs) crossing my fingers i'm Mm -hmm. hoping it's a sputnik vaccine Mm -hmm. i don't think it's the astrazeneca one although it might be
0: why not i think it's it is going to be the astrazeneca one
1: probably but like don't they have like age restriction weird on that now Age they, restrictions. Like, they only do the AstraZeneca one for, like, a certain age group. And the Which... other vaccines are that because of, like, blood clot risks and things but, like that. Yeah, but you're
0: not... But you are you would be within the age group that they would give it to because you don't have any, like, complications or not. Like, I think they would restrict it to people above a certain age, right? Like, you're not at risk for blood clots. I
1: have not actually looked into it. <laughs> but it might be the AstraZeneca one. Yeah. Well, I will tweet out when I know which flavor. <laughs> let us know. Which uh, which Sprite flavor I get of the vaccine. Mm-hmm. If it, there's bubbles in the vial in the or not. I'll let you know. Mm-hmm. But how are you?
0: I'm... um well, I don't have a vaccine date, no. so I'm uh, I'm, I'm not as good. I'm... Oh yeah, also, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. Yeah. How do you feel?
1: Old. <laughs> That's why I got the vaccine. <laughs> but enough about me. How Like you, you don't have a vaccine date. I don't. But you have been reading books.
0: Have I? Yes. Which, what? We're
1: what? reading books together.
0: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I'm reading Lolita with you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have a little book club going.
1: Mm-hmm. The Leechfest Book Club, <laughs> reading about truly horrifying crimes.
0: Yeah, it's so funny with this book. Um, it makes me feel so stupid. I don't understand half of what that guy is saying.
1: Yeah, uh, the the book uh, Lolita by Vladimir Nabokov is like written. Really like someone who has been armed with a, thoth- a with the thesaurus, yeah, uh, and is really just trying to stretch out his essay limit.
0: Yeah, I I think it's 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 really nicely written. It's just that sometimes I get so frustrated because I'll get to like I I think I speak English pretty well. I've been speaking English on a daily basis for like ten years. Mm-hmm. Um, but reading that book, sometimes I'm like, this sounds like English. <laughs> is it English? <laughs> it, it,
1: Theoretically, I don't know any of
0: these words. <laughs> anyway,
1: in theory, this could be English.
0: Just called myself out. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, that's fun. I don't know. I'm. Uh, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I'm vibing. Mm-hmm. I'm chilling. Waiting. Waiting to get vaccinated and be able to like live again.
1: But didn't you also get into a certain uh, <laughs> university? uh yeah. thing
0: yeah i I got into a grad program, so that's exciting, hell yeah, so now I can be more unhinged online because I'm not worried about like admission officers like looking me up and looking at what i'm writing and being like
1: denied. So um, now the the podcast is unlocked. Yeah,
0: so. you may have the noticed the Twitter account
1: has become unleashed.
0: You may have noticed that I'm posting a lot more um, unprofessionally yeah. on the Twitter account. It is because I've been accepted to a grad program, so mm-hmm. now I'm like.
1: You, you don't need to hold back. I anymore. don't need to hold back Show anymore. Show your true colors, truly unhinged colors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So anyway, um, that's us. That's news. That's news. We can get on to doing the actual episode, but before we do that, as always, we have a patron to thank, Um, R. Riley. R. Riley, this episode is dedicated to you. To you.
1: (laughs) To you specifically. Thank you. To you. And all of our patrons, we would not be able to do this podcast as reliably as we try to do. So thank you to all of you. Thank you, Um
0: Okay, now that's done. So... Um...
1: Into the podcast we go. <laughs> Into
0: the podcast we go.
1: So we're going to talk about the opioid epidemic which I feel like uh, it's been in the news occasionally. Like, people have heard about what the opioid epidemic is, and it's a bad thing, obviously. But it's one of those medical news that, like, people are aware of, but isn't hitting the headlines as much. Mm. I think most people probably don't know exactly what an opioid is. Like, what is opium? What is an opioid? Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, Well, I'm glad you asked. So, opioids are... they're drugs are drugs which bind to opioid receptors in the brain like that's that's kind of a very general definition that mm-hmm. encaps- encapsulates all of them so there's a few different kinds of opioids there's natural opiates so there are substances that are derived from the opium poppy there's semi synthetic opioids which are chemically modified opiates. And then there's fully synthetic opioids, which are, you know, produced in a lab Mm -hmm. by scientists.
1: Just complete chemicals.
0: In this episode, we're going to talk about exogenous opioids, but there's also endogenous opioids, um, which can be classified as endorphins, which I think most people have heard about, Mm. encephalins, dynorphins, endomorphins, and nociceptin. Um, so medically, opioids are used to treat acute pain and severe chronic pain, such as pain following surgery or uh, trauma. And they've also been found to be really important in palliative care to help with the severe and chronic pain that can occur in some terminal conditions, such as cancer and degenerative conditions, such as rheumatoid arthritis.
1: Because it's a it's a it's a painkiller. Like yeah. generally, like that's the. Yeah. Like that. And that's what it's, it's used a, for. It's
0: a very powerful painkiller.
1: <laughs> a very powerful painkiller. <laughs> it's like a truck.
0: So as far as their mechanism of action, they act upon opioid receptors, which are scattered throughout the nervous system. So there's five different classes of opioid receptors. However, more than 70% of them are mu receptors, um, which are located throughout the brain, on peripheral neurons, and the digestive tract. Obviously, there is a very complicated mechanism of action, which is a bit beyond the purposes of this episode. But basically, the opioid binds as an agonist to the opioid receptor, and the signaling cascade is triggered, which ultimately leads to a decrease in signaling from one neuron to another, therefore resulting in a decreased sensation of pain. And this pathway is what opioids are known and used for.
1: So basically, they bind to... Like receptors, yes. and makes them makes them talk less.
0: They interrupt signaling from one neuron to another, mm. and basically prevent pain signals from reaching the brain. Yeah, um, and that leads to a decreased perception of pain. Yeah,
1: like the cause of the pain is there, but you're not feeling pain. Yeah, anymore. exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, good painkiller.
0: <laughs> so. The most commonly used opioids are natural opioids, which include morphine and codeine. And semi-synthetic opioids, which are drugs like oxycodone, hydrocodone, hydromorphone, and oxymorphone. Mm -hmm. Methadone, which is a synthetic opioid, is also really popular. And then synthetic opioids other than methadone, like tramadol and fentanyl, are also widely used. And then lastly, heroin, which is Mm -hmm. an illicit opioid synthesized from morphine is ultimately very popular as well.
1: Yes,'re we're gonna, we're gonna dig into why. Mm. There's, a, there's some interesting facts about heroin that I mm. that I learned for this episode actually.
0: Mm. Also quickly to go over the legality, most of these drugs are prescription based, which has contributed to the creation of the epidemic, except for codeine, which can actually be purchased as an over-the-counter medication. And heroin, which is fully legal. (laughs) Um, The most common opioids involved in in prescription-based opioid ODs are methadone and oxycodone and hydrocodone. Also, really quickly, in the United States, opium poppies and poppy straw are prohibited. Like, you cannot really grow poppies just because you want to. (laughs) You
1: know that. These flowers are banned.
0: The laws around growing them are a little bit controversial. But it's, it's definitely, like, a complicated process mm. to grow them. And you're likely to, to uh, face some legal issues yeah. if you just start growing poppies. Um, like,
1: you need permissions and you need regulations. And there's a lot of work gone into, like, being mm-hmm. allowed to make, mm-hmm. to grow poppies. Yeah.
0: And it's not just the United States. Uh, in places like Germany, you need a permit to grow poppies. And in South Korea, the cultivation of the opium, opium poppy is strictly prohibited. No poppy for you. No poppy for you. No no lemon poppy seed cake for you. <laughs> so now we know what opioids are. Do you want to talk a little bit about the history of opioids, or more specifically, the history of opiates, because those were first?
1: So the history of opium is, uh, is interesting, because it hasn't always been illegal as it is today, like, in, in many parts. And uh, opium and opiates has been known to, like, humanity mm-hmm. since the ancient times. Invented by Mother Nature, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Ancient societies, like the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptian, ancient Babylonians, they all knew about, about uh, poppy... Uh, milk of poppy, for example, mm-hmm. uh, as Game of Thrones have called it, and uh, they know that it's been that it can be used to reduce pain, to and to be used for a variety of medical purposes. But it has also been used recreationally, like people have smoked or made it into teas, or they've made all sorts of fun fun things with them. And it, it hasn't been super well regulated or experimented on for much of uh, much of history. Up until the British Empire, mm-hmm. which is where opium went from being like a thing that existed to becoming a massive industry that could be profitable because the British Empire loved opium, it, it, it loved it, partly because they did a lot of war mm-hmm. and opium for soldiers is like one of the only few medications that actually yeah. like works uh, to make them both calm and also to like not going to complete shock when you have to do amputations and stuff, which happens a lot in, in, in warfare. But opium would also be used just by doctors throughout the British Empire uh, and in many European countries to treat general coughs, uh, swellings. And it was actually very, very good for reducing deaths. It actually saved uh, thousands uh, of lives because it it reduced uh, diarrhea. And a lot of people would die because of lack of um, lack Because of, of dehydration. Be- yeah. Dehydration, Exactly. <laughs> So opium was like a very successful in, in as a medication for that reason.
0: So opium was not just used in times of war. In the 16th century and beyond, these concoctions <laughs> containing opium extracts.
1: These potions.
0: These potions containing opium extracts called laudanum became popular in the treatment of various ailments. By the 18th century, the medicinal properties of opium and laudanum were well known. But the term laudanum came to refer to to any combination of opium and alcohol. People like people really experimented with
1: concoctions with these
0: concoctions. they like they mixed opium with anything. Pain
1: like alcohol relieves pain and makes people feel good. Opium makes people feel good. Combine, oh,
0: Um, powerful,
1: powerful (laughs) concoction that relieves pain. They
0: they mixed it with mercury. Hashish. Of course,
1: of course, they mix it with mercury. They mix it everything with mercury. They
0: mix it with hashish, with cayenne pepper, ether, chloroform, belladonna, whiskey, wine, and belladonna.
1: Bradina. That's a poison.
0: Um, but. But like you say, like, they didn't really have so many drugs back then, right? So Mm. an opium kind of worked in the sense that it took away pain. So they kind Mm. of used it for for a lot of the health issues that they had back then. So they used it for for pain, for trauma, for surgery, but also for, like, coughing and diarrhea and, like...
1: Swelling. Swelling. And
0: we have to remember that, like, let's say, like, you know, late 19th century they had so many diseases that just kept coming back, like cholera and dysentery and diarrhea was common, you know, because everybody mm-hmm. was going around dirty. So having um, having this medicine that made people feel better mm-hmm. was very valuable yeah. and people didn't really know what it did mm-hmm. right, or how addicting it was. So they just took it. But not only was it used for diseases victorian women were prescribed it for relief of menstrual cramps and infants were actually spoon-fed laudanum by nurses to stop them from crying which i guess it worked it so, was i mean they also... stop crying <laughs> forever
1: oh god <laughs>
0: um i mean
1: heroin they used to give people heroin too we're gonna get into that as well <laughs> yeah kids heroin to stop coughing yeah and it worked
0: yeah and it was also the the thing is that it was also quite cheap Laudanum, it was cheaper than alcohol because it was treated as a medication for legal purposes and was not taxed as an alcoholic beverage, which was convenient, but it was also, like, long-term problematic.
1: Problematic. (laughs) Problematic favor, laudanum. Um,
0: And then in the 19th century, uh, so, okay, so, like, so far we've been talking about opium. But in the 19th century, in the early 19th century, morphine became isolated. And it was it was isolated by the German pharmacist Friedrich Sertuner. Do you speak German? Do you no, know how to say no. that? Sertuner. Sertuner.
1: Sertuner.
0: <laughs> um, so he isolated morphine from opium. And he named the substance morphium after the Greek god of dreams, morpheus mm-hmm. as the drug has the tendency to cause sleep
1: and put you outside of the matrix <laughs> and give you the red pill or the blue pill <laughs> uh
0: yeah i guess pro- i mean yeah he probably thought of matrix and he was like oh yeah that makes sense
1: yeah exactly he saw the movie matrix he in 1804
0: ma- yeah yeah exactly and he was like you know what that works and that the
1: movie kicks ass
0: i love that movie
1: so as you mentioned like a lot like yeah, laudanum and a lot of other types of, like, opiate concoctions and potions were being prescribed for, like, everything, basically. Mm -hmm. It was, like, liberally used, it was used recreationally, used for all sorts of problems, and just for for a good old time. Mm -hmm. This also means money, (laughs) cold, hard cash. Uh, Because the British Empire, for example, and many other empires, obviously, but the British were the most empire of empires, uh, realized that, hey, we can make a lot of money from this. (laughs) Like, a ton of money. And of course, opium is addictive. These opiates, opiums, whatever, uh, they are, you know, they, they, they make people addicted to them if they take it too much and too frequently, which is great news for the British Empire. They love this. That's, that's amazing because this means that you can make, you can have a reliable customer base. Mm-hmm. So the British Empire during the 1800s shifted vast sectors of, of its own like agricultural economy to produce opium. So that they can both sustain like the pharmaceutical industry at home, but also to just export it, to make more money. Major part of the uh, British Raj, which is modern day India and Pakistan, were shifted to producing opium instead of food. Which uh, led to a lot of more starvations for Indians and Pakistanis, uh, and more money for Englishmen. So uh, the British Empire says, good news, good trade offer. It was so profitable that the empire tried to uh, sell their opium to literally every single market in the world, because they... They mass-produced it to such a to such a degree. And eventually they forced a war with the Chinese Empire, the the Qing Empire of the time, to force them to buy opium. Because they had came in there saying, like, hey, do you want to buy our opium? Emperor says, no, this this is awful. This is causing health problems in my people. I don't want this. This is a bad thing. And the British Empire said...
0: You will take our opium. You will like it. You will, you like will it. have
1: it. Actually, you will buy our opium, and you will give us Hong Kong. <laughs> And that is why Hong Kong became part of the British Empire, because of drugs. Uh, this led to huge social problems in China, obviously, because as literally millions and millions of tons of opium flooded into China, and because authorities were not allowed to ban it, they weren't allowed to regulate the sale of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, whenever, and whenever like local authorities tried to regulate it, they would often be met by the British Empire coming in with some ships and blowing them all to some of the and again, this caused huge, huge social problems as massive sectors of the population were basically addicted to opium. And these problems act, like lasted until after the Second World War. So for over like 150 years, almost 200 years, uh, China had to deal with like an opioid epidemic of, of their own. Just because it is so massively addictive. Around the turn of the 20th century, though, there's a bit of a change, in Western countries specifically, where countries start to legalize against opium dens. People see that there's a bit of a social danger here. Some of the first ever drug laws are instituted to regulate against narcotics, uh, which is starting to become defined. In America, these are fueled by anti-Chinese racism because uh, Americans thought that opium dens were hives for smallpox brought in by Chinese immigrants. This is but, so,
0: There's so much to unpack here. There's so much to unpack.
1: <laughs> and because China was dealing with so many social problems, Many of them were emigrating to America, yeah, and bringing opium addiction with them God. <laughs> and uh, and and occasionally smallpox, not as much as the racists thought, but a little bit unfortunately, which led to the like excluding uh, Chinese people from voting, uh, immigration bans, and closing down on opium places because they thought that op- that the Chinese were bringing opium, uh, which really came from the Brits. Uh, we can blame everything on the British Empire. <laughs> I like that. but around this time, poppy opium began also being replaced, like the natural type of opium, the more like raw, unfiltered milk. Mm -hmm. Um, It began being phased out alongside these bans against it and more regulation around it. Around this time, the world's first synthetic opioid was developed by the German pharmaceutical company Bayer, which is still around and uh, makes my hormone replacement therapy, (laughs) Uh, because they invented heroin, which is a safe alternative to opioids. Whoa. wait
0: where is that from
1: I don't know but it's did you just make it up no it's from something it's, from something. it's a clown noise what I'm trying to do oh okay um,
0: wait we should actually include a clown like a, like the circus song yes circus <laughs>
1: Because heroin is much easier to um, to produce, to transport, and beca- just became a better option than opium flowers.
0: Opium flowers? Do you mean poppies? Yes. What a weird way to refer to poppies. <laughs> You've been saying opium flowers this whole time. I'm like, did I miss an integral part <laughs> well, of Op- poppies? Yeah. Like opium? Fl- I'm like, well, I'm eight. like getting, I'm like getting nervous. I'm like, should I do like a quick Google? Should I should I just like look it up real quick? Well, no, it's
1: poppies. Like, but it's <laughs> it's 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 easier to make heroin than it is to grow poppies. Yeah, sure. Uh, was what it's saying? And you know, along along this time also comes many other synthetic opioids. Like, people start making them in labs, or you know, taking a little bit of poppy seed oil, for example, mm-hmm. and making and adding synthetic components to that in order so mass produce it even more. Mm-hmm. And this is where you know around like the 1920s, 1910s. That's when we're starting getting. Massive amounts of new types of opioids that are more pharmaceutical in mm-hmm, nature.
0: Mm-hmm. So before we get into the actual causes of the opioid epidemic, mm-hmm. epidemic and like the, the results of it, I just figured we should quickly talk about where they actually come from, yeah. the opiates. And there's a few places where um, they, really, they really have a thriving poppy industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and they are Afghanistan. Uh, Southeast Asia, mostly mm-hmm. Myanmar, and Latin America, mostly Mexico and Colombia. Um, Afghanistan is kind of big.
1: Afghanistan is huge.
0: On opium poppy mm-hmm.
1: um, crops. And do you know why? Uh, no, why? It's the British Empire, isn't <laughs> it's it? A br- it's the freaking <laughs> British Empire. They came in and set it up. And like, it, this, they didn't, they're not because of it now, but they started it. Yeah. And now, it's like funding, like, I know that like massive amounts of Taliban funding comes from this. Mm-hmm. Like... Because it's not farmers, by the way. I should mention, like, we should mention this. Like, in all of these cases, it's not it's not poppy farmers who are making like bank from this. It's, no,
0: it's uh, yeah. it's gang leaders. It's and gang leaders. And stuff like that. Yeah, I know that. Like with Mexico, I think there's four cartels that are basically supply supplying the entire uh, United States of yeah. America with with heroin. Um, but yeah, like Afghanistan, they produce more than ninety percent of illicit heroin globally, and more than ninety five percent of the European supply.
1: Yeah, if you if you if you are buying heroin, it's coming from Afghanistan, almost definitely.
0: Yeah, so then the heroin coming into the United States, like I said, is mainly cultivated in Mexico. They usually smuggle it across the U.S. Southwest border in passenger vehicles or tractor trailers. Um, they also produce a lot of heroin in Colombia, and they're trafficked to the United States by air and sea. And then most fentanyl coming to the United States is produced in China. Oh um, and the Chinese government apparently has taken steps to better regulate fentanyl and other synthetic opioids, but the problem with drugs is that as like if you just tweak the chemical uh, the chemical formula a little bit, mm-hmm. then the laws don't apply to that product anymore, so basically the Chinese government cannot keep up with. <laughs> With the with the um, with the manufacturers that yeah. just change the chemical formula all the time,
1: yeah, and they just have to change it like a little bit while yeah, still exactly. having a effect. Exactly. designer drugs is what that's called. exactly.
0: Just so, just to summarize, countries in Southwest Asia, primarily Afghanistan, supply markets in neighboring countries in Europe, and then countries in Southeast Asia primarily Myanmar, supply markets in the East and Southeast Asia. And then countries in Latin America like Mexico, Colombia, and Guatemala also mainly supply the United States and uh, some markets in South America. So there's a few, like, hot spots in Mm -hmm. the world that supply everybody around.
1: Mm. It's a big industry. It's a multi-billion dollar industry. So we talked a little about what an opioid is mm-hmm. we're talking about where they come from we've talked about where uh, like the history of it a little bit mm-hmm. like where they historically come from where they're historically gone mm. uh, where they're currently coming from uh, but where are they currently going mm. like what's what's the current state who is it currently who who where where is where are they ending up basically
0: yeah and where where are we with the mm. opioid epidemic now yes. and this is something that you're gonna you are going to really take us through
1: yes because uh we've been talking about opioids generally Mm -hmm. like right now and since like the 1990s there's been something called specifically the opioid epidemic Mm -hmm. which is separate from all of these other historical like uh patterns unless you say yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna dig into that in detail a bit later uh but who whomst whomst is taking these opioids right now where where are they going who are the victims
0: well, it so happens that the vast majority of those who overdose on opioids are non-Hispanic white Americans, and they make up more than seventy-five percent of the total of you know people ODing on on um, opioids. Mm-hmm. Uh, Black Americans and Hispanic Americans account for about thirteen and nine percent of the cases, respectively. Unsurprisingly, U.S. military veterans make up a, a large proportion of. Of sufferers, um, you know, and it's mm. it's not surprising. Many of them suffer from chronic pain as a, as a result of their service. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, veterans are twice as likely as the general population to die from an opioid overdose. And this is according to a study commissioned by the National Institutes of Health. Also, do you know something that I've noticed? It's, it's a bit interesting. So uh, most people who overdose on opioids are white, but um i happen to like hip-hop a little bit (laughs) Uh you know i'm i am i'm i'm very white and um but i do i do listen to Mm hip-hop and i'm i've noticed that opioids are really sort of a big part of like hip-hop culture really um these days yeah um like have you heard about lean
1: i have not I am not at all like involved in hip hop or <laughs> rap. I don't know anything about that sort of cultural sphere. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know what lean is. I so, I think I've heard it some like in a song once or once yeah, or twice. yeah.
0: Because it's people people really sing about it in, in hip hop. Lean is um, it's this drink uh, that people make from codeine. Yeah, so like cough syrup containing codeine, and they mix it with Sprite uh, or um, and and like candy, usually Jolly Ranchers. Yeah, and it's um, you know it's it has become very popularized through hip hop, and I was looking through it a little bit in hip hop culture. There's a lot of references to drugs, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, and you know, smoke
1: weed (laughs) everyday,
0: and opioid. Yeah, exactly. But actually, like incidents of weed being mentioned has Mm. decreased over time and yeah and now they they really refer to opioid a lot more um snoop dogg
1: gotta get back in the game i know he was he because we're we're probably gonna make an episode on marijuana one day right marijuana compared to opioids is like way more safer and yeah secure yeah, yeah he was he was keeping the community safe i know
0: he was. What is he do? I think he's cooking or something. I have no
1: idea. He's probably cooking with Martha Stewart. Yeah. Yeah,
0: he is. Yeah. There's a
1: this has nothing to do with the episode at all. I saw, have you seen a good I saw there's a an meme, image wait, of Wait, I saw a meme. Yeah. I saw
0: a meme about um about him where he said where it says that like this this man has won the game and now he's just doing random side quests. <laughs> because he's he's doing like the cookbooks. Yeah. Coming like I saw him in a He's talk for, shows
1: occasionally. Yeah.
0: Anyway, this is sometimes it's
1: on TV, Um, but I saw another meme where he was he and Martha Stewart were cooking, and the meme said basically like one of these people has been has been to jail, (laughs) and it's not who you think it is.
0: Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, he has been. been, been, He's been been on trial
1: for murder. Yes,
0: he's been. He hasn't been convicted, but he's been convicted. But but he has been on trial. So no, but but I just wanted to mention this that Mm. like opioids are really a big part of hip hop culture, and I'm you know like. A lot of the people who overdose and who suffer from opioid addiction are white, but it's kind of, like, inching its way towards black communities as well. Mm. Um, and, yeah, like, lean is is, is big.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
0: purple drink is, a, is known otherwise. I'm
1: guessing it's purple because of the cough medicine.
0: Cough medicine, it's also sometimes mixed with, like, grape soda.
1: Yeah, all right.
0: But, yeah, like, lean is big. Percocet is big.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, you know, and there's been so many... Rappers who have died of like opioid overdoses. Yeah. Like I don't know if you've heard about Little Peep.
1: I, I have not heard about. Have Lil you Peep. heard?
0: Have you heard about Juice World?
1: I have not heard about Juice <laughs> World.
0: Uh, Mac Miller.
1: I have not heard about Mac Miller. I mean, I, I want to be respectful because I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm implying, I'm getting the implication that these people have died of overdoses. Yeah. You yeah. could have made one of these names up, and I would not know. No,
0: they are they are real people. Mm. No, they passed away due to um, opioid ODs mm-hmm. and it's just it, you know it feels like every year some rapper dies of like um,
1: yeah some some opioid yeah, yeah. I, hear, I, I know really... the fentanyl is like oh my god fentanyl yeah.
0: fentanyl is awful fentanyl is so scary yeah. it's I think it's like 40 or 50 times stronger than heroin which which has to say like listen like when I was growing up heroin was like the drug to be afraid yeah. of like if you were if you were afraid of a drug it was heroin. it was heroin and, and, and now fentanyl... heroin and is it, like it's the like,
1: kind cousin to right? fentanyl now
0: fentanyl is stronger than heroin and it's so crazy because fentanyl is like prescribed to people yes imagine getting prescribed something that is 50 50 times Mm -hmm. stronger than than heroin that's bananas
1: and we're gonna get into that too yes and you and you did mention that the majority of those who suffer are white Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think (laughs) the vast majority the vast majority and it and that is because that is actually pretty interesting because where of where this pandemic uh, epidemic is hitting
0: because you keep saying pandemic every time we talk I about know, it. I know, I keep
1: mixing them up. When it's we, wrong. When
0: we did the Black Death, you, you kept saying pandemic. I too. know, it's
1: wrong. But this epidemic, uh, the, the opioid epidemic primarily, is caused originally by prescription opioids. Mm-hmm. As in like medicines made by scientists to treat medical situations. Yep. In very broad strokes, before I go into detail, the reason why there is a current epidemic is because of some shady pharmaceutical companies and some very opportunistic criminals. Not technically working together, but not harming each other, like, in the end. So that's how the situation is. So in the 1990s, before, uh, before we're in this, like, current vibe, uh, America was dealing with something, was dealing with pain management. Doctors were hesitant to prescribe any kind of painkiller, and uh, there were a bunch of myths going around about, like, how pain works. Some people said that, like, elderly people are more immune to pain, that babies don't feel pain. That black people feel less pain than white people. Stop. <laughs> which is a myth that existed and still exists to this day among many medical professionals, unfortunately. Um, I, I, I don't know why people think that, but it's a, it's something that uh, it's something that people think. Uh, and because of this, people were like, hey, we don't need to prescribe painkillers. Mm. And there was also a fear called opiophobia, where people thought that if you prescribed like a single opioid as a painkiller, they would become addicted like that, mm-hmm. like like nothing. So people didn't really want to, and another reason why people didn't really want to prescribe them, why doctors were hesitant, is because in America before 1990, doctors could be sued; they could be held accountable if a, if a patient became addicted to the medication. Mm-hmm. But around the 1990s, because uh, states wanted to make it more possible for for doctors to reduce pain, they made it so that doctors can't actually be held liable for for this. That's the first step in this. Uh, clown fest that we're about to get into because we're, there we're are many to... steps here and they're all bad.
0: We're about to enter the stage of history where there's a lot of arrows <laughs> and little exploding <laughs> bubbles and
1: what <laughs> historians call the cool zone. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, so, so so a law was passed that, didn't, uh, that allowed doctors to prescribe medication without yes. being hold, held accountable.
1: Many but individual laws throughout states. This led a lot of um, companies to argue that painkillers are not, are not actually that addictive. Like they wanted to capitalize on this like new trend on like trying to combat pain. <laughs> uh, one letter to the editor uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine claimed that addiction rates for prescription opioids were less than zero point zero five percent, like almost non-existent. Another letter claimed that opioids could be used to help cancer patients with chronic pain. Previously, before this, opioids were primarily used in very very limited scopes as in for short-term pain relief, and like, as you mentioned, like, after surgeries, or after, like, specific traumatic events. Like, not used for chronic pain, they're not meant to be used for more than a very, very short amount of time. But these studies gave the impression that opioids were safer than previously thought, and they could be used for more things. But critically, it gave the impression to many doctors that opioids were only really addictive if they were used recreationally. But if you had pain, and if you just alleviated pain, it wouldn't cause an addiction, which is false. (laughs) It can still cause an addiction even if you're not using it recreationally. So medical companies, again, trying to capitalize on this, namely uh, Purdue, assured medical personnel and doctors that their opioids were not as addictive as they were in reality. Many uh, companies would market them as a sort of wonder drug with Mm -hmm. almost no uh, drawbacks doing this in the early 1990s and 2000s. To get into specifics, in the 1990s, Purdue managed to launch the drug OxyContin, which is a variant of oxycodone that has a long-release mechanism. Basically, you take it and it hits over time. And they marketed this heavily to doctors and to the American public. Because this is how America does its healthcare system, where they can do pharmaceutical advertising, Mm -hmm. which to me is wild, by the way, American listeners out there. I know you exist, and it's wild to me that you have, ask your doctor if if OxyContin is right for you. (laughs) No, the doctor is supposed to know the drugs, not you.
0: It would be, like, it's so funny, because, like, if I were to go to my doctor and be like, hey, prescribe me this. Yeah. Or just, like, like, ask my doctor, like, what if I start taking this drug? They would probably, like... Spit in my face. Yeah. We don't do this this week. No, you don't.
1: They will, they will spit in your face, being like, no, you don't you, know You this. don't know anything. Have you gone to school?
0: Have you gone to med school for nine years? I don't think so. I don't
1: think so. I have. The pharmacist has. What have you done? You would probably have more credibility than I would be because I would be like,
0: I studied medical history.
1: <laughs> I know
0: how the world acted no. in 1832. No, I would not have any credibility. They would, mm. they would tell me that they would. I mean, if I were okay, honestly, like in all seriousness, um, if I were to go to a doctor and ask for a specific medication, they would probably think that I'm a drug addict. Mm. That's yes. the that's the only way. That's like the only interpretation they would have for that. They would think that like the only reason why you would be interested in this particular drug Mm -hmm. is because you are addicted to it. Yes. And you're too stupid to, to like, know how to ask for it in a way that is not going to make me think this. Like, they would would have no respect for you Mm -hmm. if you did that.
1: This, um... This actually comes back in the American epidemic. Like, this hits not only when asking your doctor, but it hits in a weird way later. All right. Which I'm going to be, which is going to be interesting. We're going to dunk on the American healthcare system so much in this episode because this epidemic probably wouldn't be possible without the way it works. Like, you know, a pharmaceutical company uh, launching a new drug, marketing it to doctors, marketing it to the public, that's not in itself at least by American standards, like immoral. Like nothing, that's what, that's how new drugs work. That's they launch something new, they want doctors to prescribe it, they want people to ask for it. Because it's not just Purdue doing it. Basically all pharmaceutical companies are doing some version of like marketing their, their opiates. It's like they're, they're safe, they're stable, don't worry about it. Uh, by 2000, uh, doctors were running over six million uh, opioid prescriptions per year because opioids at this time were seen as very versatile. You could use it for all sorts of uh, p- of pain relief or medical conditions. We're back to laudanum basically um and also because opiates were very cheap mm. so individual clinics could use it and it would also it was also seen as like a kindness to patients because they were cheaper than other types of of therapies, for example, like physical therapy or other types of medications that probably would be more. Like beneficial in yeah, the long term, yeah, and,
0: and that a lot of medical insurances would not cover. Yeah, that's something that I read about also mm-hmm. that they would prescribe these because they just those were the only ones that patients could actually like afford.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. So um, part of this meant that prescription opioids became very popular and like a staple of the American healthcare system. Unfortunately <laughs> for the American public, these companies like Purdue were lying, <laughs> and not just uh, like marketing because marketing marketing lies are like a little white lie kind of like people will exaggerate things but no they were literally lying knowingly about the addictive effects and also to regulatory companies and we know this because last year they actually pleaded guilty Mm -hmm. to uh to a bunch of to a bunch of things first of this is fraud and i think the level of fraud here i think really paints an image of like how this epidemic went from like a a potential small issue to a huge problem in, like, less than two decades. Because during the 90s and 2000s, Purdue had also lied to government regulators about steps that they were implementing to reduce the misuse of these medications. Mm -hmm. Basically, when they market these medications to doctors and clinicians, they have to say that, like, they should only be used for these conditions, they have to be used for this. And if they notice that, like, doctors are over prescribing it, pharmaceutical companies are supposed to say, you're not supposed to do that. Purdue said that they were doing that, they weren't. Uh, they completely lied. Uh, regulatory agencies also tried to make sure that these pills would only go out to like proper accredited, safe uh, medical clinics. Purdue said that they were taking efforts to make sure that it was happening, and lied. <laughs> Instead, they were they were supplying knowingly and marketing to so-called pill mills, which cropped up over America during this time specifically. And these are medical clinics which are have on-site pharmacies where the doctor will basically take a quick look at you and then prescribe you an opioid because that it's it's that easy apparently to set up a medical clinic in, in the US. Jeez. I know. Um and these pill mills are basically they take a quick look at you, they don't really give you what you need, but they will offer like basic medical care and they will often push opioids to you. Um
0: I wonder how pill mills like fit in the like larger picture, I I, I guess I've mm-hmm. heard about them, but I didn't. I don't know that much about how they work and how they sort of fit. Mm.
1: Because in the big so, picture, because sometimes they can just be like some doctor setting up his own little shady shack, being like, "Come to me, I'll write your prescriptions." Mm-hmm. Uh, but many times these pill mills will just take the form of like a, your normal everyday clinic mm-hmm. with one shady doctor. in it. So so what would happen is like the doctor. It is illegal for the doctor to take money in order to prescribe a certain drug. Mm-hmm. That is illegal. That is mm-hmm. whole ass illegal. There's you, you're not allowed to do that. But what would happen is, like, the clinic will get money. And because of America's privatized healthcare system, sometimes a doctor will own the clinic, and the clinic will be paid by the insurance company for...
0: Uh, like, taking on more patients? Yeah,
1: well, taking on more patients, and also just, like, prescribing medications in a very, like, effective way. That mm-hmm. that, that means that, the, that that clinic will be very profitable, and then they can just pay themselves extra. So it's not technically like an illegal drug deal where Purdue, like, pays a doctor to give them, to prescribe un- unnecessary pills, but that is kind of what's happening like indirectly interesting and shady and shady right these pill mills helped spur on the epidemic because they would often supply people who had become addicts to painkillers or they would turn people into addicts because many of these pill mills would often use opioid painkillers as the first resort to basically any problem (laughs) that a patient would come in to get help for so if you're coming in with a headache opium if you're coming in with a backache oxycontin coming in with stress oxycontin you get an oxy for everything
0: you know this is gonna be a very this is gonna sound very naive but i i don't know how these people sleep at night like Mm -hmm. this is a life ruiner
1: it is a life ruiner yeah and it gets worse (laughs) because purdue not only did this like lied about how well they were regulating it they also pleaded guilty for so-called kickback fraud which is where they will literally give a doctor direct money for prescribing more oxycontin. And, that, in, and in that case, the doctor isn't doing his job anymore. The doctor is literally just like a, a paper writer to give out more pills. One way they would do this is, is they would often give doctors a either a share of the profits, again, if they prescribed more oxycontin than they would usually do, or they would give them like speaking opportunities and pay them like $2 million for a speaking opportunity to 10 people. <laughs> Talking about how, the wonders of oxycontin. <laughs> it's such a good medicine. Here's two million dollars. Mm-hmm. And they would only give the speaking opportunity to people who would prescribe more OxyContin. So, you know. The, they were probably pretty,
0: very good speakers.
1: Yes. Uh, not only would they give money, they would also give merch. <laughs> uh, pharmaceutical <clears throat> reps will mm-hmm. go to doctors, for example, and give would they would give out uh, hats, shirts, uh, free lunches, which is kind of legal, uh, but lunches for these people would be literally every day, and would be like high-end lobster and fancy stuff. And a lot of that isn't actually illegal, <laughs> which is weird. But Purdue were doing it, and other medical companies were doing it, to the blatant extent where they actually got in trouble for it. Like they were, even though this is shady in the legal sphere, they were doing it to the extent where it actually broke loss. And of course while they're doing this, doctors are prescribing more and more painkillers, more than people need, and for conditions that they don't have to use. While also, even doctors who are responsible have been lied to because they are also releasing study after study that says that the Oxycontin and other pharmaceuticals are not as addictive as they think. So, you know, even even good doctors who don't want to take bribes or whatever, they will also prescribe too much because they think that they're prescribing the right amount. And because they are addictive, despite the claims made by pharmaceutical companies, this led to a lot of patients becoming addicts and the kicker here is that oxycontin isn't even that effective as a, as a pain reliever in the first place which made the problem even worse because then patients would they would take the recommended amount of oxycontin not get the pain relief they wanted take more and again that like the more you take the easier the easier time you have getting addicted but it didn't stop there obviously when people talk about the current opioid epidemic, where patients will become addicts to these opioids, it's primarily in the United States, but this has actually become a global problem fairly quickly. It is kind of spreading in similar healthcare systems where there are similar flaws in the system. Like this is, this is something that like was made possible by the privatized healthcare system of the US, but it's it is kind of spreading also in Canada, for example, uh, which doesn't have the same system, but has some privatized interests in, in Europe too. And there are doctors who still today will overprescribe opioids, for again problems that don't don't require it but this had some pretty devastating effects right in 1999 only nine years after oxycontin was released to the market people started seeing a very marked increase in overdose deaths due to people taking these medications in 2010 the prescription overdose rate was actually going down but the but here's where we're starting to see the second wave of the epidemic which hit harder uh, which is where heroin comes in because heroin is cheaper than oxycontin. And once you become addicted, you're going to try to get more of it. Some people can't afford to keep their prescriptions going. Sometimes doctors will not prescribe more. And when you're an addict, you can't just quit cold turkey. Like that's that's really, really hard. So a lot of people will turn to heroin. 80% of American heroin users, 80% were formerly addicts of prescription opioids. The heroin industry relies on already existing addicts, which sustains and fuels the epidemic. This has kept going. Like there there have been anti-heroin measures in place to try to limit the use of uh, of heroin. But in 2013, that started the third wave of the of the opioid epidemic, which is even worse than the previous two. This is where drug producers would start replicating synthetic opioids such as tramadol and fentanyl, like we mentioned. And that is the current ongoing and increasing crisis with increasing overdoses every single year. And the reason why producers are using stronger and stronger medication is to keep the addicts that they already have uh, and of course to make new ones like fentanyl became really popular because people would mix in fentanyl with heroin to make heroin more addictive
0: yeah yeah and i mean fentanyl is incredibly easy to OD from. i yes. i don't i don't have the the specific numbers right now but i know that it's it's kind of a common problem among anesthesiologists that work with fentanyl and you know these people have gone to like medical school yeah. The medical profession is a very difficult one, and a lot of people working within the healthcare industry have mental health issues, and you know, uh, the rates of alcoholism and drug addiction are pretty high. And so, a lot of these anesthesiologists that have access to fentanyl, um, you know, it is common sometimes yeah. that they will um, they will try it. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to put it in like a delicate way because obviously yeah. it's 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 awful. Yeah, it's horrible. It's but the point I'm trying to make is that, you know, anesthesiologists are ODing on fentanyl because it's so incredibly easy mm. to to misdose, to take a little bit too much because it's so powerful. Yeah. Can you imagine, um, you know, regular people yeah. taking fentanyl? Yeah,
1: people on the street. And taking like homemade fentanyl too. Yeah. That's like not, that isn't made by a lab either, because I've going to sit in the lab at least, at least like it's standardized. Yeah. Like, if you, if you take fentanyl that you took back from the studio, you have no idea where it comes from, mm. you have no idea how strong it is, you have mm-hmm. no idea, you have no idea. Yeah. So, we're going pretty quick throughout this epidemic, like, what, it, what caused it and what's happening right now. But the scale of this can be kind of hard to comprehend because a significant percentage of the American population is dealing with, currently right now, opioid addiction. Uh, I think I saw somewhere around like 5% of youths, like young people, Mm -hmm. uh, are currently struggling with some type of opioid, like misuse. Maybe not addiction, but misuse, which is very, very high. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's one in 20, I believe. And there are obviously some effects of this. The first effect that people talk about is the fact that this epidemic has primarily hit rural communities, many rural states. Uh, in the U.S. and many rural towns have been completely devastated by by this epidemic, partially because anti-drug measures are almost entirely focused on the inner cities. Because that it's still seen as like drugs is a city problem. The people don't really see it as like a you McDonald on the farm dealing with a fentanyl addiction. Like people don't people don't have that mindset. So you're
0: allowed to say this because you're from the country. I'm from the
1: country, y'all. I am a Swedish renegade. And because many but because many of these systems and support networks are in cities, many people in the countryside are left completely without yeah. support systems. Yeah. Especially when you have like one doctor in town and what he's doing is prescribing you like opiates. Mm-hmm. Like mm. you can't go to him and be like, Hey, I have an opioid addiction. He's just gonna give you more opiates. Another side effect of this is that many who become addicted on prescription painkillers won't be able to sustain their addiction, like we mentioned, that's why they move on to things like heroin. But many people will also move on to other types of substance abuse like yeah. this also fuels, fuels like alcoholism this fuels yeah like basically any sort of substance abuse to sort of cope with this because uh, once you're addicted it's really hard to kick it yeah it also leads to uh, a lot of american criminal gangs having a very very <laughs> like reliable income source now mm-hmm. uh like again 80 percent of people who do heroin have had prescription drug problems and with this massive rise in drug problems, that's a huge new income source.
0: Yeah. So increased gang violence.
1: Mm-hmm. Smuggling, sm- uh, mm-hmm. generally.
0: Mm-hmm. Increased crime. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's also obviously possible to pass opioid dependency on children. Like, if, mm-hmm. if pregnant mothers are uh, dependent or are using opioids. So we have generations of babies being born dependent on opioids. Yeah. The opioid crisis is also fueling an increase in the number of children in foster care. Mm -hmm. So it's this epidemic is is having a wide range of of negative effects, Mm. and it's uh, it's horrifying, really.
1: Yeah, it's uh, it has like as you say like huge ripple effects. It has also
0: taken a toll on the economy. We have to. Oh no,
1: the economy! I know.
0: (laughs) I mean, we got we got we got to do
1: something about this. (laughs)
0: Well, now it's serious. Now it's
1: serious. (laughs) Yeah. Millions of people dead, but the economy taking a. Well,
0: listen, we're on the same page, but let's just mention it, you know, because like a lot of the people who are, you know, I don't like to use the word dependent, but who are users of opioids or people who are of working age. Mm -hmm. Um, This leads to a decline in labor force participation Mm -hmm. among prime age workers.
1: Plus... uh you know, having an opioid addiction can cause more health problems. So it it does also cause like an increased burden on the healthcare system, which in America is really bad because America has a really bad healthcare system. Yeah, It's also basically reinforcing poverty Mm -hmm. because it is hitting like poor Americans more than it is hitting richer Americans.
0: I have a feeling, so this is not something that I specifically researched, but I have a feeling that while opioid use is... Is common with wealthier Americans as well. Mm-hmm. Those people don't have to resort to heroin yes. <laughs> to fuel their like addiction or their dependency or their mm-hmm. use of opioids. So you know it's affecting lots of people, but it's just that the, the less wealthy Americans are the ones who suffer the most because then yeah. they they are forced to use unregulated, um, unregulated drugs off yeah. the street. Yeah, like black tar heroin. <laughs> oh my god. So
1: yeah. No, but you're, you're entirely right. And, you know, even if, even if you do manage to like reduce costs or whatever, um, you know, if you It's a very if, if short have... term,
0: it's a very short term cost reduction. Yes. In the long term.
1: Yeah, that's, that's what I'm trying to say where yeah. like, if, if you have to encounter the healthcare system again, because now you have like severe health problems due to an opioid addiction, um, because in America healthcare costs a lot of money. Yeah. A lot of people will be saddled yeah. with debt because yeah, they have or... been basically forced into an addiction by a pharmaceutical company that they're now forced to sustain with no health support.
0: Yeah, um, and I, I think treatment for addiction in the United States is is generally not. Um, it's it's not it's not big. Like it's not part of like your regular. Like regular services that are yeah. offered to you, right? Like you'd have to go to, and, and you know, don't quote me on that. I'm not. I'm not mm. super sure. This is more of a conversation. I'm yeah. asking you if maybe you know. But you can't really just like go to a hospital and be like, "Hey, I'm addicted to heroin. Help me."
1: Yeah. Right. Like some. The, I mean, I know that they will often, from what I've heard anyway, they will. Yeah. They, they will refer you to basically a private clinic somewhere. Yeah, like, but
0: like, good luck affording that. Yeah. That's that's what I mean, right? Yeah. Like you'd have to go to rehab. Yeah. Who can afford rehab?
1: No one can afford rehab.
0: (laughs) Well, some people can afford rehab. Well,
1: some people can afford rehab. But not not us proles. No. We, um, unfortunately, don't have that. Um, Another effect, though, is that we have sort of come back to square one, Mm -hmm. where in the 90s, a lot of doctors were, again, overly hesitant to prescribe painkillers to people who really need painkillers. Like, there are people who are suffering from, like, chronic pain due to cancer, uh, due to... Uh, like, surgical complications. Like, there are people that are suffering from pain, mm-hmm. right? But now, some doctors are over-prescribing while some other doctors are under-prescribing. Mm. Some people will be like, no, I can't give you Oxycontin even though you have, like, cancer and you're suffering and you're in pain every day and you you can't operate. I can't because there's a risk that you become an addict. Yeah. Which, sometimes, like, that that fear is a bit high. Like, there is there is a cost... There's a cost-benefit analysis there to be made where like we're not over-prescribing it to cause people to be addicted, but we shouldn't like it is a medication that is useful for people as well. And we that shouldn't be discounted. Yeah. Um and that's really unfortunate, because now 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 we're sort of dealing with the negative effects of both. Like there are some people who are suffering from pain and there are some and there are a lot of people who are suffering from addictions. Yeah. yeah. We're it's all bad. There's no benefit from either side here. Finally, this is leading to potentially other types of uh, health issues in the future Mm -hmm. right now this epidemic is ongoing fentanyl is on fentanyl use is on the rise but people are already predicting that when the opioid epidemic is over we are going to have another type of epidemic which is the benzodiazepam epidemic (laughs) because a lot of doctors (laughs) are shifting to other types of painkillers such as benzos which are also addictive, mm-hmm. and many yep. of the same pharmaceutical companies have been starting to market benzodiazepines as a safe alternative to opioids, which it is not. Mm. Um, and then this has led a lot of people to worry about a potential new epidemic uh, with a new type of painkiller. Which com- so companies are doing the same thing again with a new medication. Although there there are some good news here. There are some good news. I know that this has been a bummer of an episode well
0: i have another do you wanna i have another layer of bummer before we oh go God. into the into the good news okay um it's a very short short uh short little section but um it just i just kind of felt the the want to mention it because it's um You know, it's topical, you know, we're dealing with COVID now Mm -hmm. and COVID and social isolation and everything that comes with it has really not made it easier for people struggling with substance use disorder Mm -hmm. Um, because, you know, you have to isolate and... Isolation is really hard for people who are dealing with with addiction, and um, you know when you when you deal with addiction, they usually comes with depression and other psychiatric disorders. So having to to deal with all that and then having to isolate is really really hard, and that leads to a lot of people relapsing. And also the fact that hospitals are so overwhelmed with COVID cases, um, and they're overcrowded, and you have to to like jump through all these hoops to get medical attention. That also um, makes it really difficult because it basically limits people's access to certain medications and services that people who use opioids or who struggle with an opioid addiction rely on. And then also the fact that we have a situation where unemployment is rising, that's also making it uh, very difficult because people are, again, cut off from society. And for a lot of people who are struggling with substance use disorder, being integrated in society, being being surrounded by positive influences, being, keeping busy, like, that's, that is an important part of recovery. Um, so it's, um, God, it's not a good time. It's not Uh, a good time. Struggling, (laughs) struggling with addiction and also living through a pandemic. I... It's rough. Yeah, I'm, you know, I'm, um, I really feel for these people, I guess is, is what I... I can say addiction is hard. It's it's really hard. I don't mm-hmm. wish it on anybody. Yeah. Um. Yeah. But do do did you have some good news? To I share? have to, I have some
1: good news. <laughs> yeah.
0: Let's slightly. hear it. Slightly. I think we, we need it.
1: We need it. Well, prescription drug use has uh over prescription has dropped significantly. Uh, a lot of governments, uh, especially in the in the U.S. and in Canada, like in America, generally where the problem is like maybe the worst. Uh, there have there has been like crackdowns on so-called pill mills. There have been higher regulation about uh, around like how opioids can be prescribed. Yeah, which are good things. Like there has been some like social structural change. Sure, companies like Purdue. Mm-hmm. has been sued. They and just, Good. <laughs> just just last year, they pleaded guilty to, to basically everything they were accused of.
0: What was the sentence for them?
1: Uh, from what I can see, it, they did a, a settlement out of court mm-hmm. uh, for $8 billion.
0: It's a big sum, but... It's, it's
1: not that much for this company, yeah. unfortunately. This is drops in the bucket for them. Yeah. They profited yeah. billions more than they had to pay. So they still won from this. Like, they still came out with a profit. Which... You know has, I'm sorry, Justice Department of the u United States, <laughs> but if you actually want to punish a behavior, it has to cost money. They can't make a net profit from it It has to cost money
0: i wonder if uh, I wonder if you know any of the people that became addicted to these pharmaceuticals got any like where did the settlement go? Did these people get anything?
1: From what I can find, it, it went to the Justice Department. Like, oh. It hasn't like gone to any like individual. No. I know that, I seems, know that there that have seems... been class action lawsuits yeah. by people, but as far as I know, they haven't actually resulted in anything. And many of them are currently ongoing at time of recording. Although the 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 family that is in charge of the of the Purdue Pharma, the Sackler family, mm-hmm. uh, they have been forced to pay two hundred and twenty five million in civil penalties, which might go to some people might. So quarter of a billion dollars. Like $20 maker. each. Like $20 each. That's, it should be mentioned that like 300 million people have died from this epidemic. By right, now, exactly. The like, that's so that's like I'm... less than a dollar each. Yeah, yeah. Like for each life. Like it really shows how much how much the Sackler family cares about human life, uh, where they will offer to pay less than a dollar per person they killed. I'm angry at this at this family. I hope they won't sue us. <laughs> All of this um, is public record by the way. I'm not I'm not I'm not actually defaming anyone here. I'm there's no slander. There's no there's no slander here cuz all of this is written like in the New York Times on the internet like this is public record. They pleaded guilty. Fuck Purdue. Fuck you. You have to beep this. But fuck you. <laughs> Purdue, fuck you Sackler family. Fuck you you assholes. You absolute massive cunt and assholes. Oh you God. deserve to rot in the <laughs> deepest bowels of hell.
0: Yeah, like I'm trying to think, like what would be an appropriate sentencing for for this family? I like I, what what price can you put on on this number of human lives? You know.
1: Well, at least make them poor. Yeah. like Like I, what the thing that I really hate about this is like eight billion dollar settlement from the company. Like that it's, it's make nothing a dent. for it's nothing for yeah. Purdue Pharma. Um, what? Let, let's see how much they actually like make per day. Purdue uh, Pharma they make three billion every year. Girl. <laughs> So that's nothing. Yeah. Oh no, they 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 will they took like a 2-year loss. Uh-oh.
0: <laughs> anyway, I hate rich people.
1: <laughs> oh, by the way, they've also paid out in 2007, they also paid out um uh money for criminal charges relating to OxyContin. Uh-huh. Um because they mislabeled uh its product as being safer than it was. Should be said, though, that that was in 2007. They kept doing this up until 2017. So they paid the bill and kept going. They're not going to stop. Just shut them down. Literally just shut them down. They're not doing anything. Did they invent the COVID vaccine? No, they didn't. (laughs) Shut this company down. I'm sorry, you... Period. Period. (laughs) Period. These are evil people. Anyway, no, it's not even 2017. It's 2019. Purdue continued to market and sell opioids as late as 2019, and they're still getting sued.
0: <laughs> All right, um, I think we share these feelings on on Purdue Pharma. Do you wanna? Do you wanna? Do you wanna wrap this bitch up? I do want to wrap
1: this this thing up. Uh, I hope that many of the other companies, Purdue is on the list mostly because they were one of the worst, and they are uh, suffering. Thankfully. But uh, I hope that the other companies are also going to suffer from this. And I hope that people who are been affected by it get the support that they need, maybe from that money. And so it doesn't just going to bailouts for the rich people.
0: Yeah, so do I.
1: So that's the opioid epidemic. Yeah, currently ongoing, one of the worst uh, health problems. Bummer episode. Next time we're gonna talk about something more fun, maybe, in the in the dark history of medical history. Next episode, just the Tacoma Ridge disaster. <laughs> I'm kidding.
0: Maybe next episode we'll talk about herbs or something. Just talk about Belladonna just talk for about one poisons. hour. Poisons.
1: Fun poisons. Mm. Maybe we should we should eventually make an episode. Because this was this is about a a drug that is like very, very bad. Yeah. Um we should eventually like fairly soon maybe we should make an episode about like weed. <laughs> We missed it because it was 4:20 not long ago. We should have made an episode for 4:20. Oh my
0: god, you're, you're right. What an opportunity. What an opportunity. Do you know what the 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 worst is is looking back at missed opportunities so, cuz I edit the episodes, right? So like sometimes I'll I'll reach a point um in the editing and I'm like I can't believe the joke.
1: Yeah. The, the joke, missed opportunities the, for jokes.
0: Yeah. But yeah, we can do an episode about weed. Maybe it's gonna be a little bit more fun than this one. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's just I don't know. Yeah. I like I like I like making jokes, but also there's just
1: it is truly horrifying. Yeah. If you struggle if... with addiction, listening to this, uh, remember to reach out help uh, in the way that you can. Like I know that it's it's probably hard for depending on where you are and what resources are available to you, but if you can. Um, you know, there are, there are, there are, there are systems to help.
0: You know, yeah. I don't know if this is cheesy, but like, you know, if you struggle for, with addiction, you are loved.
1: You are loved. And
0: you are valuable. And we at Leech Fest Podcast are rooting for you. Yeah. <laughs> Please reach out for help. Um, you, you are loved and you, you deserve a good life. hmm
1: we could probably make an episode about addiction one day. Yeah. Like what, what it means to be addicted. Because, you know, no one should blame themselves. Yeah. But you know what you can blame? For very bad uh, jokes. Keeping me. I've been Mia Mulder.
0: <laughs> we didn't introduce ourselves this episode. Oh no! Oh no.
1: We can edit this in the beginning. I'm that's, Mia Mulder. That's
0: fine. That's fine.
1: Yeah, they know who we are.
0: We they know. Well, this was the opioid epidemic. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. We tried to make it kind of fun while still, like, being respectful Mm -hmm. of something that is very horrible and awful awful, and it's still happening and there's no end in sight, really. Like, it just seems to be kind of changing into something else. Um, But... um,
1: We hope you learned something. It was informative. Yeah. Like, more than anything else.
0: Yeah. My name is Raluca Muntano.
1: I am Mia Mulder.
0: And this is LeechFest. Once again, thank you to everybody who is listening to our episodes and who is supporting us by sharing and liking mm-hmm. our content on Twitter. Um, our Twitter handle is LeechFestPod. And our Patreon is Leechfest podcast. So if you like our content and you want to support us, that mm-hmm. is always super appreciated.
1: And if you're on Patreon, you get access to episodes a month early. Yeah. So you can listen to next month's episode right now.
0: <laughs> yes, you can. But you can. All right. Have a great rest of the day and we will see you on the next episode.
1: Yeah.